All that being said, we're in a sermon series in the book of James, and if you would like to turn to the book of James chapter 1, we're in verses 9 through 18, and I'm going to call this sermon Overcoming Temptation, Overcoming Temptation, amen. amen. There you go, Jeremy. So beginning at verse 9, we'll read, we'll pray together this morning. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for your word, God, we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to worship you. And I, and I know that each person, God, this morning has sensed your presence here. And so, Holy Spirit, we're just asking you to do what you always do. That is, you teach us, God. You guide us into all truth. Lord, you bring freedom into our lives because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so I pray, God, you would open our hearts and our minds. You would anoint your word, bring it life, God. Let it penetrate our hearts to cut away things that don't need to be there, to see Jesus more fully, and, Lord, to give us the direction and guidance we need in our lives in this moment and change us into the image of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So last week we talked about about trials, right? And, and, and the thing is, you know, I even, I even talked to a couple people this week, like if I'm going through something, I tell them, you know, something that kind of happened. Maybe you were in conversation this week and you were sort of just doing a little bit of some mild complaints about something that happened. And a couple people said to me, because of what I preached last week, they said, well, did you count it all joy? You know, and, and that's a difficult thing. Is It's a difficult thing to literally just take minor inconveniences and genuinely count them all joy. And what, what James is saying, he's saying in the Christian life, we are to be marked by joy that surpasses our current circumstances. Basically, he's saying if you're a person that is led by the circumstances in your life and your attitude is based on what's currently going on around you, he says, then you're not yet mature and complete. And actually, trials will do you some good because in those trials, you can start to figure out what kind of a heart you really need, and it will refine you and give you perseverance and endurance and strength, and God will give you wisdom in it until you tune your heart to realize that, hey, I've got Jesus Christ in my life, and it don't matter what's going on around me. It doesn't matter what people are doing to me. I can have joy because I've got a loving union and a relationship with the God who made the ends of the earth, and he loves me more than I could ever 
ever imagine. And somewhere in there as Christian people, we begin to have a joy even when things are falling apart sometimes. And people say, and it's not that we don't, we do get down. This is a struggle. We battle. We have trials. But he's saying we have to learn how to find joy in those trials that we face every day of our lives. And he says you got to seek joy in your trial. But here's what he says. Now notice, because this all comes in the context, and in verse 14 he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now here's the point that I want to try to make, is that really, see, we... We have trials, and, and honestly, they're going on it all the time. And we talked last week, some of them are global, some of them are local, some of them are personal. Maybe we're dealing with family issues or financial issues. But when there are more trials in our world, there's a more, more of an opportunity for temptation in our heart. Amen. When, thing, when the pressure gets turned on, it's like the devil's just looking and he's saying, you know what, maybe we'll turn the heat up on that dude. Or maybe he just sees that by random happenstance in your world right now, you are going through trial and you're allowing the pressure to get to you. And he tells his little demons, he says, boys, this is an opportune time. They are experiencing pressure, they're experiencing trial, there's anxiety on their life. Now we can swoop in and offer them something that we can deceive them into believing will bring them joy and bring them peace and bring them satisfaction. And so while we're going through trial, temptation increases, Satan offers us a counterfeit joy and begins to lure us in. And because all of us, we got desires, our deepest desire, we, we want to be loved we want to experience that love, and we want to experience true satisfaction and joy and peace. And when we're not finding it, man, we'll start to look anywhere for that, won't we? And Satan says, I'll give you something. I'll give you a taste of something, and he brings that in. But see, there's a brain science behind this, literally, because neuroscientists, they finally back up what the Bible says. Anytime, they, anytime you go deep into science, science will eventually back up what the Bible says. But, but, but when they go deep into science, what they find out is literally what we just said, that trials in your life send signals to your brain that basically open you up to temptation because under pressure, you start looking for a hit of dopamine. You want some kind of release. So you can turn to sex, you can turn to food, you can turn to drugs and alcohol, you can turn to shopping, you can turn to trying to seeking after money, you can try to find another relationship. You're going all, you can go on a Netflix binge, and even at the end of the day when you're wore out and you go on a Netflix binge, all you really want is some kind of release. You want a dopamine hit. The reason you scroll through your social media like crazy, you're looking for that next dopamine hit. It's an addiction because you are dealing with the struggles and the trials of your life and you're looking for something to bring you some form of release from the anxiety. And here's the thing, we got a lot of trials right now, don't we, in our world? I mean, you say, well, life is just easy right now. It's been easy for the last couple of years. I doubt anybody would say that. And here's what anxiety really is. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, unease, typically about an imminent event in the present. So I've got, I'm nervous or I'm worrying or I'm uneasy about something that's happening right now in my life or an uncertain outcome in the future. And I start to think about, well, what I'm going through right now is bringing me unease. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And, and then, but then I start to think about my future. Well, how is how's God going to provide down the road five years, ten years? Where is it going to be? Where are we going to have the resources? I mean, look at the gas prices right now. You know, just, just all this stuff starts to flood our minds, and we start to have this unease. I, I remember even this week, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I, my mind, I'm a thinker, son, so I'm just in my mind rattling crazy things around all the time. And, and I have to remember to take 
my imaginations and my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and to the Word of God and constantly renew my mind. Because somebody was telling me about gas prices and I actually went and got an oil change and then they said something about Biden. Well, he's shutting down oil in Ukraine and this and this and they're saying oil prices are going to go up to this amount. And immediately, they said that in one time and within three seconds, a, a, a vivid image and a story played out in my mind that was apocalyptic, son. Like I saw nations falling and just and, and people not having any food and all this stuff going on. You ever do that? You ever just go worst case scenario, apocalypse is hitting, this is the end of time. And really it's just like, okay, gas prices went up a little bit. You know? And, and that, but that's the tendency, and sometimes it's even more so among Christians because we think we got an end times theology that's so accurate that anytime something bad happens in the world, it's like, well, this is the end. And I'm thinking, you know what? Some bad stuff has happened in the world a whole lot of times. Jesus is coming, but we don't know when he's coming. And really, a lot of the things that we think are some of the worst things in the world are just going to happen. They're going to pass, and we're going to move on. But the thing is, is this comes into our mind, and there's four common categories of anxiety in the brain, according to scientists. Now, notice these. They say these are the four most common categories of anxiety in the brain. Health and safety, Right? You want to be healthy, you want to be safe. You want kids to be safe. Secondly is financial concerns. You start thinking about money and provision. How am I going to have enough? And that causes anxiety. Third is politics. Praise God, right? I mean, and then fourth is relational conflict. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but over the past, since 2020 hit, we had some health and safety concerns above and beyond what we regularly do. That led to actually financial concerns, people putting out PPP loans everywhere just because we're scared to death we ain't going to have enough, which led to political conflict. And people would say that right now, politically, our world, our nation is actually more divided than it's ever been since the Civil War. And that's crazy to think about. But then that leads to relational conflict because we'll fight over who's wearing a mask and who's not and who's been vaxxed and who's not. And then it just it breeds within your own home and you're on edge, so you're cussing your wife out. And, and then the next thing you know, you're just breaking down mentally, psychologically, physically. And all of these things are happening because anxiety is flooding into our souls. And see, if we turn to God's Word and allow God's Word to help us, though, we can get out of that negative loop. Because let me tell you something, some of you all are in a loop. And you don't even realize it. I can get into a loop, a cycle, a brain pattern. And what happens is you experience one trial that locks you into fear and anxiety. And then that fear and anxiety leads you into making bad decisions based on fear, which leads you into a greater trial, which leads you back into more fear and anxiety, which leads you back into making more bad decisions and greater addictions. And the only way you're going to get out of that loop is if you get into the Word of God and begin to worship God and begin to react and respond differently to your trial and say, God can change me in this. He can give me joy in the midst of it. He can change my heart. There is something that happens. We can go worship the Lord together as a congregation and the Spirit of God can flood hearts and bring about transformation. And then you start to respond differently to the same trials. You start to be thankful for things that you forgot you did have rather than worrying all the time about the things you don't have and you renew your mind you re-hardwire your brain and you change the neurochemistry of your very makeup it's biblical folks you are transformed by the renewing of your mind you get a godly perspective not a worldly perspective and he begins to bring something in because a fearful brain when you are operating under fear you're seeking two things all the time again this is science folks right everybody said trust the science i'm trusting it right here this morning praise god 
A fearful brain seeks two things, information and control. You know what I'm talking about? Anything happen, like your big toe start hurting, Google, big toe hurts. What is it? Well, it's cancer. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And, and all that, that stuff really happens, doesn't it? I mean, we, 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 get, in, we get into that. We want information. And here's the problem with information is there's way too much of it for you to get all of it. And secondly, most of it's wrong. Like there's false information everywhere. So you just get flooded with more information, which causes you more stress and anxiety. And then all of a sudden you start trying to control things. But then you find out, really, I can't control this. Like I can't bring it in. I can't fix it. But you want so bad when you're under fear, you can sense it because you're trying to control everything in your life rather than rolling it over on the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm going to put my burdens in your hand. I'm going to cast my burdens on you. I'm going to relax. I'm going to live in peace. I'm going to live in refreshment from the Spirit. And I'm going to let you take care of what's going on in my life. But when you're operating under that fear and anxiety, you start to look. It shows up in an edginess. It shows up being restless and tired. You can't concentrate. You're irritable. You have trouble sleeping sleeping and all of those things happen and then I'll, anybody amen me this morning I see a couple of you. like you know exactly what I'm talking about and then it, and it gets deep into that cycle and the only thing now because the trial has put the pressure on you and you're like a pressure cooker you're looking for any kind of release that you can find and James really hits at two things in this chapter when you're going through trials. It, what we just read, and we're going to break it down. But he says, really, when you're going through trial and you start to be tempted, you will probably act out of one of two things, and you'll try to seek satisfaction in a couple of categories. And one of them is things that we own or can buy. And two are sins that we commit. You try to seek satisfaction in things you can buy or sins that you commit. And so he breaks that down, and number one, I want to tell you this, joy doesn't come from the things that you own. I know that's hard to understand, especially for American people. But joy does not come from the things that you own. He says, James 1, 9 through 11, we read it, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Matter of fact, in, in, in another translation, it would literally say, let the poor brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation... Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now he's comparing the rich and the poor. Because here's the thing. What he, he knows that when you go through trials, a lot of times it has to deal with money. And poor people and rich people look at money differently. And they look to seek for things that will bring them some sort of satisfaction in the midst of their trials. But here's the thing about rich and poor. It's really subjective and it's hard to really categorize when you look at it globally and you look at it historically. What do you mean by that, Clay? What I mean by that is, is if you can use the bathroom inside... You're doing, pretty, you're doing pretty good globally. I'm serious. I've been, I've been to Africa. I've been to India. Both those times, I used the bathroom outside in a rock system where they let, let it drain properly. In India, we would go into homes, and there's a hole in the floor. You know what I'm saying? And these were nice homes compared to of, of what they were talking about. So if you use the bathroom inside, guess what? You're pretty well off globally. Matter of fact, most of you in here, you, may, you are rich concerning to a global standard. The way we live in America, historically and globally, people have never lived like this luxuriously on a large scale ever in the history of time. 
And so it actually ends up affecting the way we view God and the way we, our, our theology is developed because you got prosperity theology now. And basically what that is is we just believe that God wants you wealthy, rich. He wants you to get more money. And all of a sudden, he just becomes a guy that if you can believe hard enough and confess it hard enough, he'll give you a better car, better job, more money. And then you'll be happy because more money is really the goal of life. Anybody amen me this morning? And I tell you one thing Jesus didn't say is that more money is the goal of life. But right, now, but right now people are like, you know what, can't ever get enough money in this life. We need more money, more jobs, more of that, all that. And I'm telling you, money, money is good when it is stewarded well because obviously it's the currency that we have to use to get things done in our world. That, that is understood. But the fact is, is that Jesus said money is going to pull you away from God. Matter of fact, it is easy uh, for, for people, whether they're rich or poor, for money to become their God. You don't even have to be rich. You can be flat broke this morning and not have a penny in your bank and money still be your God. That's how powerful that it is. But he says this joy doesn't come from the things you own. See, on the other hand of the prosperity gospel people that think it's all about money and how much God can give you. And really the thing is, it's like if you pray and then God doesn't give you that thing, we're like, well, this didn't work. Christianity don't work. God is not your genie once again. He's not here to give you what you want when you want it. He's here to supply your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He will give you what you need. Matter of fact, he said you don't even have to worry about the clothes you put on or the food you eat. He says, don't you know, have you not looked at the lilies of the field? Have you not looked at the birds of the air? Not one of them goes without something to eat. And he said, what are you doing worrying? The Gentiles and unbelievers worry about money and food and clothing their entire life. And he says, but if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of those things will be added unto you. It's a focus. You don't seek money. You don't seek clothes. You don't seek cars. You seek God and He gives you what you need. Man, that's a good promise right there. One of the hardest ones for us Christian people to receive and actually believe. We think we're in control and we've got to do it. Amen. Now give me a minute and I'll unpack this a bit more. But see, both sides, because there's another side, the po poverty theology. And then there's, there's a group of people that says, well, see, you just need to sell everything and be broke all your life. And that's the key to happiness. Well, see, that's not necessarily the key to happiness either. I was telling somebody, I, I read an article the other day. And then, of course, I've, I've read some conflicting arguments on it. But they wanted to see, like, how much wealth and prosperity contributed to the overall well-being of one's life. And in one study that they did, they checked it out and they saw that really it did, like, like up until a certain amount of household income, there was, there was it seemed like well-being increased and then all of a sudden it plateaued and then it started to drop off. And the number, household income, was $75,000. They said you can see people overall well-being, like it goes up until you hit $75,000 and then once you go up over that amount in household income, it sort of decreases and wanes out. So is, the richer you become, the better off you aren't necessarily, right? Because sometimes more money, more, more problems. I can't remember the theologian that said that. But, but I mean, sometimes that's the way that it goes. And, and so you have, to, you have to be careful with that. So here's the problem is that neither of those sides are work. We're not here to be led by money or poverty or wealth. We're here to be led by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit may give me a certain amount of wealth. He may give you another amount of wealth. At the end of the day, 
I don't judge your wealth and you don't judge mine. We come to the Lord and we follow His Spirit and whatever He gives me, I learn therewith to be content, to be generous, to bless one another because when God brings a church together, there's some very wealthy, there's some that are a little bit more poor, but guess what? We don't judge one another based on how much money we make. We judge one another based on the Christ that is in us and we say, I love them because you can't, look, there's something that is much more than, than monetary wealth and riches and it is the riches that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. And so when we start to look at the outside and the external, we start to miss the God in people. And, we, and he'll get into the next chapter about judging people based on that. But see, here's the thing. You don't just have things. A lot of times, your things have you. And you know that. You know that. We talk about buying this or buying that, and we're always weighing in the balance like, what kind of debt and stress is this going to put me in? Anybody amen me? Yeah. And, then, and then some of us, if we ain't got much sense, we don't even think about that. We just buy it. Say, I don't care if we got to go bankrupt. I want that thing. But what he says then is that these things fade Wealth and beauty fades away. He says, the rich man and his pursuits are going to fade away just the, way, the same way the sun rises up and scorches a plant and it dies. He says, the rich man, he, he, might, as well, he, he might as well just go ahead and boast in his humiliation because everything that he has on this earth, he's not going to be able to take with him to heaven. He's not going to be able to take it. And here's the thing, in the same way that your wealth, your money, your cars, your clothes fades away, your beauty is going to fade away. Like No matter, no matter how young and good looking you are, at some point... Gravity is going to take over. You know, I went, I went and worked out the other morning, and Andrea looked at me, and she said, are those pecs or are they sagging? That's what happens when you turn 35. I told some of them kids about 21 the other day. Yeah, anyway, praise God. But social media exists for one primary reason. Now, there are other reasons social media exists, but one primary reason that social media exists is for you to covet someone else's stuff in order for you to purchase it for yourself. How come we don't have to pay for the Instagram app? Because advertisers pay for it. Because they're trying to sell you something. And, and, and designers pay for it because they're trying to put something in there for you to buy because they know you're going to be going through a trial, you need a dopamine hit, and you're going to scroll until you see something, and you're going to covet what somebody else has, and then you're going to take two more clicks over on Amazon, and you're going to buy it. Anybody amen me this morning? I mean, like, it's good, it's good. So they've got a good system. They're very smart. So we, we get into this situation. We choose shopping. We choose drugs. We choose sex. We choose alcohol because there's a dopamine center in your brain. But how many of you have experienced this? You've made a big purchase, and as soon as you made it, there is literally something called buyer's remorse. I mean, you get sick to your stomach. I told, I told him in a small group the other day, I used to drive, I drove a 2001 Tahoe for years. For seven years, that thing didn't have heat and air. Andrea got madder and fire because she'd be in the passenger seat and she'd be like, it's freezing in here. And I'm like, well, maybe we can figure out how to rig some kind of heater or something to keep you warm over on that side. And I'd have to heat up water to, to get the ice off my windshield, you know, in the morning. And I just couldn't get it fixed. And finally she said, we ain't doing this no more. You're going to buy a vehicle. And I remember when we, bought, we went and bought me a vehicle, I come home and I was sick to my stomach. I was like, I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a different breed. I just, I just, stuff, stuff has never been one of my things. Maybe it's because I had stuff when I was young. I don't know. You know, everybody, to each their own. 
People like things, and, and I don't think there's anything necessarily with buying a nice vehicle. You got the funds to do it, get you a good vehicle, whatever. That's not the point. The point is, is that we can come into a place where we actually do what is called conspicuous consumption. What that means is this, that you buy stuff not because you need it, but you buy stuff simply to impress someone else. Man, that's good right there, isn't it? Yeah, I'm preaching good so far. Let me ask you this question. Will anybody come to the end of their lives? Like, I wonder, I thought about this as I was getting ready this morning. I thought, will I come to the end of my life? Naomi's full grown, and I'm on my deathbed. Will I look over at Naomi and say, you know what, honey? I've got one regret in life. I wish we'd have bought more stuff. We should have just bought more stuff. We should have had a bigger house. We should have went after more, more, more wealthy things. No, you ain't going to say that. You ain't going to say none of that. Not to say that those things don't add to something in your life. I'm sure they do. People have homes and they're like, man, this is my home. I have grew up in here. I've got memories here. There's something to that. It's not to totally negate things. Things are here for a purpose. But they shouldn't be our focus. And, and, and so there's something that happens when we're, when we're messing with this. You know, I've got an authority, uh, an earned authority in the realm of women's shoes. You ain't going to believe this, but when I was 19 and 20 years old, I had some friends that worked at Macy's. And they got me a job, and they decided to put me in the realm of women's shoes. Somebody amen me. It was a hard job. Um, but you get like on a sale day, these women coming in here, man, and of course they'd come up to me, and I'd, and I'd be wearing all black, looking good, you know what I'm talking about, with the tie on, because it's Macy's. And, and, you, and, you, and you, you make money based on how many shoes you sell. And, and, and so, so I, 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 we, these women will buy some of the most ridiculous shoes at, at, at outstanding prices. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about here, that women? I'm talking about you will buy a pair of shoes that I could probably go in here and find a piece of leather and make, and you'll spend $500, $600 on that thing sometimes. And not only that, they're super uncomfortable. You're probably only going to wear them about twice, but why do you buy them? Do you need them? Do they, do they help the functionality of how you walk? Are they bringing healing into your feet? No, you buy them. So that you can take a picture on social media or so that when you go out, another woman will look at your feet and say, them's cute. <laughs> That's facts. That's the only reason you buy them. And you spend an exorbitant amount of money doing that because you want somebody to look at you and say, those are cute. So you're not really buying what you need. You're buying something to impress people. You're actually purchasing attention. Because deep down, you've got a core need. And that is honestly attention from your heavenly Father that He's already giving to you, but somehow you've shut, off, shut it off because you're picking other things that Satan has offered you as a counterfeit. You want attention, but now you're using stuff to get it from people. And so, you know, people say it all the time, the phrase that said, you know what, now when we get in that position, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. That's gun barrel straight right there, ain't it, boys? <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, in our culture, I need, I need to move, move quick, more quickly through this, but in our culture today, people will view uh, 
like Marxism, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, it's kind of taken over the political realm right now. And, 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 and what Marxism is is basically this philosophy that says, you know what, the rich people are oppressors and the poor are oppressed. We need to overthrow the rich people. We need to overthrow the institutions, and we need to do that. And so they basically view that in the name of justice, we need to take money from the rich, give it to the poor. And, and so rich people are bad and evil, rich, poor people are good, and you need to overturn that. And so if you're like a liberal politically, that's kind of what you believe. You, you, what, and here's what's funny. You can be rich as all get out and still believe that rich people are evil, which is weird to me. I don't know how that works if you're a liberal. And then conservatives, on the other hand, they believe the, they believe the other side of it. They tend to believe the other side of it, that rich people are good and poor people are evil because rich people, they have jobs and they, they operate businesses and they create jobs and they give and they pay their taxes and, and they're upstanding citizens in society. And then poor people are just lazy drunks that are bums and they don't want to work and so they're a depleting society. And that's just a general outlook. But you know that the Bible actually has a, has a four, it's four categories. The Bible has four categories to wealth and really is the way that it, it breaks down. And you should already know this, but there are godly poor, there are godly rich, there's ungodly poor, and there's ungodly rich. It's just the facts. Like, there are, there are poor people who are godly. You talk about the widow that came in, and she had one coin and gave it to them when everybody else are giving big lump sons, and Jesus says, this woman gave out of her heart. And she's poor and she's godly. Jesus himself was poor, but he was the most godly individual that there was. He was God in the flesh. Number two, there's godly rich. Joseph, in the Bible, becomes second in command of Pharaoh. He owns the most assets on planet Earth, but yet he's a very godly man. I know people even in this community, I have friends, I know people in this church that are more wealthy than others, but they're super godly people. And you know what they'll do? They'll just, they won't even tell nobody about it. They'll just up and say, you know what, you need something for this right here for the church, I want to help you out. They'll just, here's five grand. They'll just do it just like that. Godly people that want to use their assets for the kingdom. So, so then there's also ungodly poor. There's people that don't have no money, but the proverb says they're sluggards. They, they don't want to work. They don't want to hit a lick. They don't want to do nothing. And they try to make schemes in order for the government to give them more money instead of obeying God's word and developing themselves and actually doing what God says, right? The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And I know that's hard. Fourth, ungodly rich. Then there's, then, there's, then there's obviously ungodly rich, and you've got people that are in power and in control and have mass sums of money and are totally bent on enslaving people, controlling people, dominating people. You've got Pharaoh in the Bible. You've got Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. You've got all the riches in the world, but they use it to abuse, exploit, and oppress people. So you could be in any of those categories, couldn't you? It's not just one or two. It's not that simple. But see, here's the thing. James is dealing with the issue of the rich and poor because trials often are about your money. They drain your money or they cause you to spend more money unwisely. When you get in a trial, oftentimes you do something with money that you probably shouldn't do. But here he goes on to the second one, number two. I've just got three points, so we're working through it. Number two, though, is that joy doesn't come from the sin you commit. So it doesn't come from the things you own. doesn't necessarily come from more money. And it also doesn't come from the sin you commit. Because, see, when there are more trials, like I said in the beginning, there is more temptation for sin. And so James moves on and says this, Blessed is the man, verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know that under the pressure of COVID and that whole situation that we just went through, and probably on some degree are still going through, sometimes I think it's over and then I'm just tricked. Uh, But under that pressure, people are actually spending more. They're drinking more, they're doing more drugs, they're getting more prescriptions, they're online more, they're shopping more, they're looking at porn more, they have more mental health issues, and the squeeze is getting put on people, and what's happening is the flesh is responding. And you see that more and more. The more anxiety, the more pressure that comes on the world, the more you will see flesh activated. The more you will see random acts of evil operating in people that maybe you didn't think would ever operate in that. And that's why in verse 12 he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. See, and here's the thing. He's talking about passing, passing the test because when you get up under trial and you're tempted to turn to money or things or some kind of sinful behavior, he's saying, guess what? You are actually under a test right now. And if you pass your test, what you are revealing is that you actually have a greater love for God and His ways and His will than you do for the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. You love God and you are choosing to reject the world and the counterfeit joys that it is offering you. You say, I ain't going to bow down to sin at this time just because I'm feeling bad. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to give God praise. I'm going to enter into His presence. I'm going to lift up a prayer to the Holy One that gives me strength. And I'm going to have a joy that don't come from the things I own or the temporary sins, sinful pleasures that I commit. My joy is in Christ alone, and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit who brings peace and joy into my heart. This is what he's saying. He's saying, so in God, you can remain steadfast under trial and not choose the counterfeit. And he says, there's a blessing that comes on your life when you pass the test there's a blessing that comes on your life when you pass the test but sometimes we do fail the test and we surrender to sin don't we we just here because here's the thing we'll get in this situation where the test comes and it's just like you know what i'm wore out i can't take no more i'm tired and all these situations are going on i just need one moment of some kind of enjoyment and relaxation and peace and so you choose the sin just for a moment We won't dive too deep into it. This is how every addiction begins. I'm wore out. And not only that, the second thing we do is we either surrender to sin or then we even blame God. How many of y'all done this? Well, you know what? If God had come through for me in this situation, I went through this trial. I prayed. I was wore out. God didn't come through. So God, you didn't show up. You know what? Forget you. I'm going to go over here and do this right now because I need some sort of peace. I need some sort of joy, some sort of satisfaction. And so you go to the sin instead of God because now you're blaming God. That's what happened with Adam and Eve in the beginning. But only those who love God and are steadfast, they take responsibility for their own decision-making. What they don't do is like Adam and Eve, when God comes up and say, Adam, what's up? Why'd you do this? He said, bro, what are you talking about? Why'd I do this? You made a crazy woman. And she came to me and gave me the apple. It's her fault. He cast blame on her. He looks at Eve then, and Eve said, It wasn't me. You made the serpent. What's he doing in here? 
And so we, whenever we fail, what we do is we cast blame on our circle. Well, if it wasn't for these crazy people or these mean people or these rude people, if it wasn't for this situation, everywhere I go, this happens. And every, I can't get a break, yada, yada, yada. you got the wrong mentality setting up in you and putting you in a loop cycle. Put, the devil putting you on spin cycle. And you've got this mentality that it's all about your circumstances. You're casting blame on it. You have to take responsibility for your own response and your own actions and your own behavior. And say, it don't matter what kind of circumstances come my way, I've got God, and He's using what I'm going through for a purpose. Amen. So here's what you've got to understand. God's nature in temptation. Because He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Can I tell you this? Temptation is a work of the devil. God is incapable of tempting people. I told you last week that the same root word, Greek word, is pirazzo for both trial and temptation. You say, well, which one is it? The same thing that God allows you go, to go through for refinement is the same thing that Satan will use to tempt you into evil. But God is incapable of tempting you into evil because he is not the author of evil. When you see evil in the world, don't say, well, that's God's will. No, friend, that's Satan's will. And God has sent Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. And he sent you to overcome the temptations of the devil. And through the power of the Holy Spirit to make it through. So in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 and 14, notice this. I love these verses. No temptation, same word. You could actually probably translate it test or trial. So no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's saying everybody's going through stuff like this. You're not the first one. But he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so in trial and in temptation, when you're going through this and the devil is, te is tempting you, God is trying you, he says, when you're going through it, you need to know this about God's nature. It ain't God tempting you, but he has a purpose. He's going, if he's allowing it, it's because he has a graduation day for you to mature to the next level. He's got, it's a setup where he wants you to overcome the enemy. But he says in that, number one, you've got to know his, his character, his nature in temptation, is that number one, God tempts no one. Two, God is faithful. He ain't going to let you down if you'll turn to him. But some of you, the devil talks you into turning away from God. Thirdly, he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability. So you can't ever come to the place as a Christian where you say, this is just more than I can take. You just lied. Because God said he cannot allow you to be tempted or tested above and beyond your ability to overcome it. But number four, here's what he's going to do when you're in it. He will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. And you say, well, what is the way of escape? Let me tell you this. I want you to hang on to this. God is the escape himself. That's why the next verse, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You get into a trial and sex, drugs, alcohol, Netflix, TV, I don't know, whatever, shopping, more money, all of that becomes an idol that says, Hey, come over here, we'll give you peace. He says, Flee that and run into the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower, and the righteous will run into the name of the Lord, and they will be safe in His presence. And in His presence, they're going to get a new perspective. How many of you, you've been going through something, and you say, I can't shake this, 
And all of a sudden, you either come to church or you're driving down the road or you're in your bedroom and you turn on some worship music, you open your Bible, and all of a sudden, in the presence of God, that stuff begins to lift and you get a new perspective because you fled idolatry and you ran into the presence of the Lord into the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower. In these days that we live in, we are going to have to learn how to do this more and more and more. We run into the name of the Lord, into the presence of the Lord. He will make a way of escape for us. But see, here's the thing. There's a lie that says God's really not that good and sin is really not that bad. People get in big arguments nowadays over, well, you know, I'm like, you know what, maybe we'll have to get a sin ranking or something. Like, well, this, is a, this sin here is an A plus and this sin down here is a C. As long as we hang out somewhere in the B minus realm, you know, uh, maybe we'll be all right. Jesus died for all sin. And so it's not a matter of the amount of sins you're committing or the good works you're doing. You come to faith in Christ. He cleanses you from all sin. But guess what? He gives you the Holy Spirit. And he's given you the Holy Spirit so that you can live a holy life. And he says, sin, see, it's not about how many you can get by with and still make it into heaven. You have a misunderstanding of sin. Sin defies God and it damages you. Any sin you commit, no matter how little you may think that it is, it is damaging you at the core of your being. And God knows that it's not about, oh, well, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I call that sin, but really it won't hurt you. I'm just trying to be a stickler. No, it will damage you. It'll get into your core, it'll get into your heart, and see, it will rewire you, and it will change your brain, and all of a sudden, you'll have a numbness to you. You'll have a condemnation. You'll sense a distance from God. You won't feel the presence of God anymore. You won't have a hunger for His Word anymore. And all of a sudden, slowly but surely, you're drifting away from the Lord. He says, no, you got to rewire your brain. you got to renew your mind by the Word of God so that you can pass your test. And listen to me on this. Part of passing your test is understanding that temptation is not the same thing as sin. Temptation is not the same thing as sin, is it? And here's where a lot of people actually slip. Let me ask you this. Was Jesus tempted? The Bible says he was tempted at all points, like we were, yet was without sin. So temptation and sin are not the same thing. That means that you can be driving down the road, a thought come into your mind that is a sinful thought to some degree, right? And if you were to play out what's going on, maybe you're tempted by lust or maybe you're tempted by covetousness or whatever. That thought comes into your mind. Satan plants a thought. It comes and see, it's not yet been sin yet. You're in the middle of your test. But Satan comes and says, I can't believe that garbage is in your mind. I mean, if you're going to go that far, bro, why don't you just go ahead and do it? I mean, it's already in your mind. No, you're in the test. Can you imagine taking a test as a high school student or a college student and your professor, your teacher coming up to you and saying, you're about halfway through the test and they just say, you're going to fail. I mean, you might as well quit now. No, you're still in the test. Resist the temptation. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Move into God. Renew your brain. Take thoughts captive. Open the Word of God. Worship. Pray. And renew yourself back into the presence of God. He says, you're still not yet sinned. You're under the test. You're being tempted. It's not the same thing. He says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, you know, some people, it's different because we all got different desires. You know what I'm saying? Like, for example, if you go, say you go somewhere, maybe you go to a restaurant and, 
and somebody leaves a $100 tip on the table, and the waitress hasn't come to get it yet, and you're looking at it, and you're like, you know what, I believe I could probably pocket that. The other person that sits down just looks at it and says, man, that's awful generous of those people. I mean, that would be nice when that waitress does it. Well, one person has a desire for that money. The other person has a desire to see that woman blessed. So one person's tempted, the other person is not. Because it's about the desire that is in your own heart that tempts you. Now the Bible teaches that these desires come from our flesh. But God has given us the Holy Spirit. And guess what? When you get saved, when you get saved, you are a new creation. He gives you the Holy Spirit. You are born again. And guess what? In that new nature, He gives you new desires. He gives you new desires. Somebody said, well, how do I know that I'm saved? When you get saved and the Spirit of God dwells in you, there were things that you used to enjoy that now you're ashamed of. There are things that you used to do that now you get convicted every time that you think about them. you got new desires planted in your heart, but what your role and responsibility is to do is to now, when you still are tempted by the flesh, you say no and resist it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Renew your mind to the Word of God. Go into prayer and strengthen yourself in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And before long, all of those sinful things, they lose their taste. See, it's about desire. You're lured away. And see, here's the thing. He gives three, three analogies for passing this test of temptation. The first one he gives is basically like a sports analogy. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he stood the test. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And he's saying, look, you're going to go through trials in this life. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to have temptations. He says, the one who endures these trials and doesn't go for a counterfeit prize will receive the reward, the crown of life at the end. You're going to be trying. Look, here's the thing. You're playing basketball with some buddies, and all of a sudden they, they stop running up the floor. You know what I'm talking about? And they, they ain't getting back and defending. You're going to get mad. Even if you're down 10 points, you want them to fight to the end, don't you? This is a thing that when you're t- you fight this thing to the end. Don't yet give up. We've got a crown of life waiting on us on the other side. And right now, I know we're under some trials. I know we're tempted to sin. But God is saying, if you remain steadfast, you're going to find a blessing if you just hang on and don't fall for the counterfeit prizes, but fall for the heavenly prize. Number two is fishing. He says that you're lured. We're lured away by our own desire. There's a bait and there's a hook, right? Now, I like this. I, I, I asked Jesse, because Jesse's a fisherman. I said, buddy, I said, what kind of, he, he thought I was just wanting to go fishing. But I said, I said buddy, what kind of what bait's the best to use right now? He said, buddy, it depends on the season. He said, depends on the patterns. You know, the devil's the same way. He knows what season you're going through. He knows what patterns of life you're in. He may offer you an Alabama rig one day, right? <laughs> He knows if you go, but he knows, Jesse told me, but you know, he said, year round, he said, the jig's the best one to go with because year round, Satan may hit you with the same thing over and over again until you pass the test. He knows the bait that you're most likely to look at and say, boy, I believe I'll I'll get there. See, because here's here's the problem. The fish is such an imbecile that it only sees the bait and it doesn't see the hook behind the bait. And here's the thing. It's not about us. we judge other people's bait, don't we? You know, one people say, well, I can't believe that person ended up turning to alcohol. Well, they say, well, I can't believe you're a self-righteous religious gossip. <laughs> Man, I'm preaching this morning. <laughs> the problem is, 
it's not up to us to judge other people's bait. It's up to us to help one another see the hook behind the bait. So you may have a problem in one area. I probably got a problem in another area. Don't judge somebody else for the bait that draws them. You're getting drawn by another bait somewhere else. And the same hook at the end of the day is going to get both of you all. And so he's saying, don't allow this bait to lure you in and entice you because there's something that it's going to draw you in and he's going to end up killing you. In James 1, 15 to 16, the last one, he says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so the last one that he uses is motherhood. And see, motherhood, he uses that language of conceived and gives birth. Caitlin about to, about to give birth here, actually, in a, in a natural sense, right? But here's the thing. When you're giving birth, like, ideally, if, some, if a woman wants to give birth to a child, what happens, right? They consummate their marriage. Amen. Yep. And out of that act, a child, they, get, they conceive, okay? The child grows in the womb. They give birth to the child. He's saying in the same way. You can flirt with your temptation. You can flirt with your sin. And you maybe even start dating that sin a little bit. Until all of a sudden you say, well, I kissed her. Might as well sleep with her. Anybody ever been that far? <laughs> Stop there. Just because, let me tell you, that's the other thing about temptation. Just because you did one thing doesn't mean you need to go ahead and make the full stop on it. You know what I'm talking about? Slow down. You made one mistake, you can cut it off. You can nip it in the bud. But see, he's saying the same way with your sin. When you flirt with your sin, finally you bring it home with you. You let it go into the bed with you, with that temptation, and you conceive sin. And when that sin is conceived and it starts to grow up in your life, you know what it brings? Ultimately, it grows up and it brings corruption and death into your life. And he says you need to pay attention to these things for that very same reason. And he says the whole time you're being tempted, what you're really looking for is a blessing from God. What you're really looking for is the love of God. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under their trial. And let me tell you this. A blessing is often missed in your life because it is wrapped up in a trial. A blessing is often missed in your life because it is wrapped up in a trial. You know the angel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, blessed are you, Mary. You're highly favored among women. And I'm thinking, highly favored, do you know what she's about to go through, angel? This woman is about to almost be divorced. They're going to consider her an adulteress her entire life because she's pregnant outside of wedlock. Then she's going to grow up and continue to be married and have Jesus. And guess what? Her firstborn is going to be murdered because of who he claims to be. Then her other son, James, is going to be murdered for serving her first son. And she's going to watch that happen both. But not only that, she was married to Joseph, who historically we know was dead by the time Jesus actually revealed himself as the Christ. So she's a widow, she's poor, she ain't got no money, and she, watch, she is persecuted herself, and she watches her boys be murdered. And, in the, and she's blessed. She's highly favored. How's that happen? How's that, how does how's that play out? It's because sometimes the greatest blessings are wrapped up in our trials because the greatest blessing that ever came to humanity was the greatest trial of all when Jesus came before Pontius Pilate and they said you know what we're going to crucify him 
But they didn't know that that trial and that crucifixion and his blood being shed and him being tormented would be the freedom for billions of people who would one day give God glory around his throne and be filled with the Holy Spirit and live eternally with him. The greatest trial that ever happened on the face of this planet brought about the greatest blessing to all of humanity. And some of your greatest trials will bring about some of your greatest blessings if you will remain steadfast and turn from idolatry and from the temptation to sin and turn to God instead. So here's my last point. Number three, joy comes from our Heavenly Father who gives good gifts to His children. Joy comes from our Heavenly Father who gives good gifts to His children. He says every good, every good gift and every perfect gift, in verse 17, is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And see, here's the thing. Satan is going to offer you counterfeit gifts. And you're going to think they're good. We get young. Man, I remember when I was a teenager, you know what I'm saying? I, I thought getting drunk and getting me a woman was the greatest two things on earth. It's amazing how dumb we are, isn't it? Somebody in here may feel me on that. I hope somebody's dumb enough this morning to repent of that or <laughs> smart enough to repent of that dumbness. But, but here's the thing. You get, you get these counterfeits. You think that money or a better job or, or, or this thing is going to bring you joy or this thing's going to bring you peace. No, it's, it's God giving you good gifts that you don't even fully understand when he gives them that's going to truly bring you the peace that you need. And you need to reject that counterfeit and understand that you are a beloved child of God and he wants nothing more than to give good gifts to his children. He's not going to withhold anything good from you. He knows that you're going to go through trials on this earth because it's a, it's, it's a world where the law of sin and death is at work and there's brokenness and there's all this type of thing going on that causes us trial and turmoil and fear and anxiety. But he says, I still have good gifts for my children. And so these trials and temptations are going to come up, but God is still going to give good gifts. And here's the thing that I found is that when I'm going through a greater trial... I'm starting to realize that there's a greater gift at the end of it. And that's hard to understand. And sometimes we work through our trials and we never come out with a different perspective because we never go in back into God. But sometimes some of the greatest trials, some of the greatest losses give us the perspective we need, even if it's an eternal perspective, even if it's to move beyond this life, to see that everything here is to be held lightly because we seek, uh, we seek a heavenly city. And so he's moving our perspective in that. But here's my last thing. Above all, Jesus Christ has come down as a good gift from the Father. So you may have a lot of issues that you've got to deal with, but the first issue everybody has to deal with is their sin issue. You know, even in the church today on a broader scale, it's like Jesus has become this guy to just sort of help us through life and be our life coach and all this stuff. And then you got people that come in who don't know Jesus and they have no clue of what the gospel truly is. And you need to understand at a base level that you are a sinner alienated from God, dead in your sins and your trespasses. There's one way to be made new and come alive. That is to repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sin as your substitute was buried and raised again from the dead on the third day, sealing your resurrection at the end of this life. And saying that 
He's going to rise up and ascend, and in the same way, you're going to rise up with a glorified body and ascend and live eternally with Him, and your sin debt is paid so you can now be joined back in union with a Father who loves you more than you can imagine. And it's time to turn from sin and say, man, I want that. I want Jesus. And if you already are a Christian, the other thing you've got to realize is that, guess what? Jesus ascended, and you know what gift He sent us? The Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, in our trial, to give us strength when we're weak. And faith tells us that even in the most painful things in our life, the Holy Spirit can bring healing. Even in the ugliest seasons of our life, the Holy Spirit can bring beauty out of it. When things are a mess and broken, the Holy Spirit can come in and bring order to our lives. And so we want to open ourselves to Him this morning. Amen. I want you to bow your head where you're at. And if you're in that first group, and you don't know Jesus and you say that's where I'm at I want to repent I'm not going to ask you to come up here but and this doesn't even necessarily save you but there's something about an act of faith a step of faith to say yeah I need to do this I need to at least call upon the name of the Lord because the scripture said as many as who call upon the name of the Lord the same shall be saved so we want to call upon his name that's you and you say that's me this morning I want to give my life to Jesus just raise your hand real quick just raise your hand let me know and say that's me I see one hand over here. I see another hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? So we want to pray for those that raised their hand this morning. And for those of you that are going through trial, going through temptation, God is right there with you this morning. So I want us to pray. And if you raise your hand, I want you to pray this morning to God. Just call upon Him. Father, we come to You. And we confess our sin to You, Lord. And we believe that you died on the cross for our sins. Your blood was shed for our forgiveness, Lord. And Lord, right now we receive that forgiveness. And we say that you are the Lord of our lives. We believe that you died on the cross, that you were raised from the dead. And we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And we ask you to fill us now with your Holy Spirit. For those that are going through trial and affliction and pain, Holy Spirit, come to bring wisdom, bring peace and bring joy because joy comes down from you, God, who gives good gifts regardless of the circumstances that we're going through. So I pray you bring those good gifts this morning of peace, of joy, of life abundant, of new perspective, God. In Jesus' name, we give you the glory for it. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet.